You're listening to Reach, a podcast created for professional bloggers to help you expand your reach and maximize your bottom line. I'm your host, Val Geisler, fellow blogger and marketer at ConvertKit. Sometimes your blog isn't meant to turn you into a professional blogger. For some of us, our blog is a way to document learning a new skill and to leverage that education to shift careers. Yes, your blog can help you go pro, even when that means working for someone else. Laurence Bradford knows this experience well. She is the creator of Learn to Code With Me, where she empowers people to learn how to code so they can get ahead in their career and life. Through Learn to Code With Me, Laurence developed a passion for online education. Today, she works as a product educator at Teachable and is a Forbes contributor. Her writing has been featured on Mashable, SitePoint, The Muse, and more. In this conversation, Laurence talks about how she decided to blog through her own education and coding, why she wishes she had created courses sooner, and how lead magnets can change the way you approach email marketing. If you find yourself feeling inspired by today's interview and want to impact your own reach right away, get our free action guide from this episode at convertkit.com reach, or just click the link in your podcast player. Oh, and just a note here, I mispronounced Laurence's name in our recording, and she was kind enough to let me know afterward. So it's not Lawrence, it's Laurence, and she's awesome. Now let's find out how Laurence Bradford achieved her reach. Hi, Laurence. Thanks for being here today. Hi, Val. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thrilled that you took time out of your day. I know that you have a jam-packed day, especially lately, and... Gosh, where do we start? I got to know about your work as a ConvertKit customer, but then I dug into what you do and it's something that it's one of those things that I feel really passionately about and have like a fifth of the knowledge there, maybe a tenth of the knowledge that you have around the topic. So can you share with our listeners a little bit about what you do, what Learn to Code with Me is, and how you got started doing it? Yeah, definitely. And I feel so flattered. Thank you for saying that. So I got started a bit over two years ago now, so really not even that long ago. And I have the site Learn to Code with Me, and the URL is a little funny. It's learntocodewith.me. And it's essentially a blog that helps people teach themselves how to code. And it's not so much actually tutorials. It's more so, you know, where to go to learn, different kinds of reviews, and just information that people learning how to code and transitioning into tech would find useful. So I started the site initially because it was just a problem I was facing. I had been trying to learn how to build websites and move more so into the world of tech and web development about two years ago. And I found that learning, actually, I apologize, it was about three years ago. So I was doing it for about a year before I started the site. And I found that teaching yourself is really frustrating. And there's a lot of feelings of loneliness and not knowing where to go and so on and so forth. So I started the site as really to kind of fill my need and hold myself accountable. And then it just evolved a lot over the years. It's amazing when you do try to teach yourself anything, how frustrating that can be. And, you know, something that Nathan has talked a lot about here at ConvertKit, and I've heard other people, other guests on the show and other bloggers talk about teaching what you're learning or, you know, even just like a step behind what you're currently learning. And that's definitely something you've built 
your entire blog around. What has that been like to be so openly vulnerable about where you are in the learning process and the struggles that you're going through? Have you always been that that open and sharing with with complete strangers as it is on the internet. I feel like that's a huge leap for a lot of people to take to go, okay, but I'm basically saying, I don't know anything. And here, come learn with me. And that's exactly, I mean, learn to code with me is exactly that. Yeah, yeah. I definitely had, I think, some hesitations at first, but I really didn't allow myself to think about it too much because I knew that when I sort of had this idea, oh, I'm going to start a blog, I'm going to have this help me uh, or help hold myself accountable. And it's going to, you know, as I learn, I'm going to kind of record what I'm doing. And then it, of course, grew from there. But I knew if I waited too long to do it, I would not do it. So as soon as I sort of had the idea, I acted on it right away because I had experience in the past kind of starting things, stopping things. Oh, this is a really great idea. And then kind of sitting on it too long and not really taking action. So I really didn't give it too much thought before I started. And I think that was part of the key to uh, how it ended up growing was that I didn't allow myself to kind of psych myself out, if you will. And I just kind of went for it. Yeah, I I know that's something that Brett Larkin talked about in episode 11 of the show of just moving forward despite any fear or, you know, not knowing. And sometimes that not knowing is is the best place to start from and to move forward because you have you have so much space to go, right? Like, yeah, yeah. There's but, plenty of road ahead of you. Yeah, there's this great quote. I Someone I interviewed on my own site uh, towards the beginning, his name was uh, John Chan. He said this, and I think it's been said in other situations as well, but you don't know what you don't know. And that's, I think, so true when you're learning like digital skills or learning how to code that when you first get started, you really have no idea what you don't know. And then you kind of reach this point, maybe it's a few weeks or even a few months in where it's like the the veil starts to be lifted. And then you realize how much more underneath the surface that you really, yeah, again, you just don't know what you don't know. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about who you are as a person and why coding was interesting to you? Yeah. So I studied history in college of all things. I didn't... Oh, yeah. History and code go together. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely. It's actually interesting because I've so far along the way, I've met pretty many people that studied history in college. And uh, one woman off the top of my head, she's an engineer now at SoundCloud. And there's a few other people. And I think that's partly because there aren't a lot of careers in history. But maybe there's something more to it. Who knows? That's a that's a different subject. But yeah, I studied history in college. And while I was studying history, and I also uh, studied a lot of uh, things with economics, I became really interested in Asia, specifically Southeast Asia and economic development. So I ended up teaching there after college, specifically in Thailand. And about six months in, I ended up getting it was like an it was like a paid internship at a think tank in Bangkok, which at the time was like my dream job or something. So, you know, relocate to Bangkok, start working there. And about a month in, I realized it was nothing like I thought it was going to be. It was incredibly boring. 
And, you know, I, I, this had been my plan for two years or so. So it was kind of, I was kind of in shock when this all started to happen. So in a bit of a panic, I began doing research online, you know, other careers, what careers are popular right now, and just trying to figure out what to do next. And I kept reading about the demand for people with, you know, technical skills, and then especially women. So I kind of thought, you know, why not? Let, why don't I just kind of give it a shot? So I slowly began teaching myself how to build websites. And then as they say, one thing led to another and moved back to the U.S. about a year after that started the Learn to Code With Me site. And now here I am. <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, there's the idea of, that we have that like what we're going to go to college for and or what we're going to do after we graduate high school or, you know, our idea of what the future holds. And then you go to college or you get, you know, whatever secondary education and then you set out to get a job. And a lot of times it's really different than what you studied or what your plan was. And then that job that is your dream job or th what you think is a dream job turns out to not be so much of a dream. I think that story is really familiar for a lot of people. And so noticing those little moments, like you you noticed, okay, what other, what careers are in demand? Is that what you were looking for when you were kind of doing that search? Or was, was it like, hey, what's the best paying job for me? What's the most exciting job for me? What, what was your, what were your Google search terms yeah. at, the, at that time? <laughs> so there was actually a lot of things beyond that kind of going on at the same time, I think, all these different factors in my life. So aside from this little story I just told, I also had started a travel blog uh, while I was in Asia. So I had been playing around like with WordPress at that point. So that was another factor that kind of you know, introduced me to the world of, you know, websites and blogging. Uh, aside from that, yeah, definitely looking for jobs that were lucrative and, you know, well, or high paying. So that was something else. And in demand jobs, I didn't have to go back to school for. So I didn't have to go back to get another undergraduate degree or a master's degree. That was something else that definitely I that kind of drew me to it. And there are also just, I think, a few people in my life. My boyfriend, we've been together for a while. Uh, he began, he had always done web design, but then he got more so into like computer science and uh, web development or engineering, whatever you want to call it. So that was definitely a factor that kind of uh, opened my eyes to the world as well. Yeah, it's amazing all those different influences that slowly become something bigger. And in the case of the blog, what were those early days like? Because there's certainly plenty of education platforms. You know, I think about Treehouse and Udemy and some of those different places you can go to take courses and learn about. Like, I mean, I think one of the things Treehouse put, puts a lot of effort into is like, hey, you can learn how to code in six months. And so what made you say... Yeah, but there's something missing. Yeah, I guess that was really from my own personal experiences because the first year I was learning, even though I had, you know, resources, I had people around me, I was living in an area where I could easily go to like different meetups. Uh, and of course, there's so much 
stuff online. There's so many resources online that we can learn from, but still it's very overwhelming because I think it almost, there's an overflow of information. So you read one blog post or one Quora answer or something, and you see someone recommending to learn Ruby on Rails, for instance, but then you, you know, read somewhere else and someone's talking about learning some kind of JavaScript library, for example. So for me, it was a lot of this like stop and start and kind of jumping around from language or technology to another language and technology and not really sure like where to go. So that was a huge motivation also for starting the site because it was hard to find like a clear answer on what to learn. And really there is no one answer, like anything. If you ask someone what foreign language should you learn, everyone's going to have a different, you know, a different answer and a different opinion. And that's very similar to like what programming language should I learn? So that was another thing that I guess helped push me to start the site. Yeah. So with Learn to Code with me, you on those early blog posts and and even still now are essentially documenting the steps you've taken to learn to code and how other people can can do the same thing. Are you creating other content as well? What is your kind of breadth of content look like on the blog? Yeah, so I've tried a few different things. Some were ex- experiments that didn't do so well. So for instance, I had like an advice column last year where I would have people write in answers. And this was totally on a different part of the blog. So if you're actually just looking through the blog, you won't see this. It's kind of hidden now on the site. I've tried different things. And more recently, I tried the podcast. And I launched a podcast back in, uh, I think the exact date was like April 20th, 2016. And I did it as seasons so I could kind of chunk things up. So I just wrapped up season one a few weeks ago. I'm going to be starting season two later in September. So I have a podcast now, which has done very well. And then really it's just the podcast and the blog. And I do have some other pages on my site and resources on my site. But as far as like the most reach goes and what the most and what most people are interfacing with on Learn to Code With Me itself, it is the blog and the podcast. And then of course, as you know, I do have an email list where I have different giveaways and I send different emails out to people that are on my email list. And that's really kind of what the content looks like on Learn to Code With Me. So those experiments that you've tried over time, whether they still are accessible or not, did you have strategy behind those different experiments? Or was it like, oh, you know, I've seen interview series work with other for other people, let me try them out or those kinds of things. Was it like, let me just give it a go and see what the response is? Or did you take a strategic approach at the beginning and... Even to this day, do you, you know, what's this? Is there a strategy behind the blog content now or all the content in general? Yeah. So the podcast was very strategic. I did a lot of planning before I launched that. And it, you know, it did do very well. And maybe because it was so well prepared, that definitely could have been a, a reason. The advice column, then, for instance, that was even about a year ago at this point, it didn't do so well. And I don't think. I think partly it was probably because I didn't do enough research and I had it as written forms, not like a like a podcast. Maybe if I instead would have taken people's questions and answered them in audio, it would have done better. You know, who knows? So definitely my earlier days were a lot less strategic uh, with the blog. It was kind of just doing a bunch of stuff, seeing what stuck, seeing what didn't. But then as time went on, especially this last year, like in 2016, I've been much more strategized. Can you talk a little bit about what the impetus has been for for more strategy? I mean, I I think I have an idea, but you have something going on that a lot of our listeners do as well of 
a full-time job on top of running your blog. So can you talk a little bit about that and how that's impacted your need for strategy? Yeah. So I became more strategic before I actually got uh, the full-time job. So it wasn't now, now with the full-time job, it's even more important because there's even less time to be strategic and really know and be aware of where you're putting your time. But before that, even when I really, when I started the blog, I didn't know what I was doing. This was again about over two years ago. And I was like, oh, I'm going to document my journey. And I really didn't even have huge goals with the site as except I wanted to become a web developer. Now, my goal changed over time. That's no longer my goal. About even six months in or something, that was no longer my main end goal uh, with the site. So early on, it was kind of just like exploratory, if that's the right word, and just, you know, getting used to blogging and seeing what worked, seeing what didn't work. And as I, you know, I did a lot of learning on my own. And because of that, I became more strategized. And also because my goals changed and I wanted to grow the blog. I wanted to grow my reach. I wanted to increase my email list. I wanted to get more page views or, um, you know, unique visitors to the site. And then when that kind of began to happen, I became much more strategized uh, in everything that I did. Can you say a bit more about why that changed and and what those new goals meant for you? Did it was the eventual goal monetizing the blog? What was the impetus behind that shift? Yeah, so even from the very early days, I thought, oh, it'd be really great if I could, you know, make some money from the site, even if that meant a few, you know, hundred bucks a month or something just to cover the cost. But early on, that was definitely not my main goal. My main goal was I wanted to transition into a job as like a web developer engineer. That became more specific over time. Then it became specifically a front end developer. And then a bit after that, I kind of realized, oh, wait, I don't want to actually code all day. I have so many of these other other interests, for instance, you know, writing, creating content, interacting with people. I didn't want a full-time job. It was only until a few months ago I actually became interested in getting a full-time job. So after that, I kind of went into this phase where I wanted to grow the site more and I wanted to monetize it more. And I, so when I began fo- putting more focus on that, I was also doing freelance work and in, in things of that nature. So I was, it wasn't just the site, it was the site and then freelance work on top of that. So that's how, because it, it's a question all kinds of bloggers get asked, like, well, how do you pay your bills? And for the, most of them, it's freelance work. And, you know, it's like the the site might be bringing in a couple hundred bucks on like Google AdWords or something, but really it's having those freelance clients. That is that how you were supporting yourself between that time with the incubator in Bangkok and, and now with your the job that you have today? Yes, freelance work was definitely something that helped me a lot. Another thing that I did, though, to cut costs, is when I first came home from Thailand, I actually lived back at home with my, well, with my mom and then she got remarried. So I was kind of living alone in our old house. But this was in Pennsylvania, which is in where I grew up in Pennsylvania, which is quite affordable. So it wasn't like I was living in, you know, New York where I live now, trying to grow my site and freelancing. I was saving money in other ways and definitely making less at that time. (laughs) But over time, I also did start to really grow my blog, like as far as monetization goes. And we can talk about that a bit. But 
what I found was I would have these months of a lot of success. And then it was kind of like a high and dry or, you know, there's terms that a lot of people use. And this is the same with freelancing as well. We can have really good months and, you know, not so good months. And that kind of inconsistent income was definitely was not great. But I learned to make it work. And then now, of course, I have a full-time job as well. And I still make money or the blog is still monetized. So I'm kind of experiencing something completely different now. So since the goal was always to end up in a job, whether it was, you know, a front-end developer or realizing you had these other the, these other passions, that's always been top of mind for you, getting into another role. Or was there a point where you thought, Ah, uh, maybe I'll just do the blog full time. Yeah, yeah. There was a point when I thought maybe doing the blog and things off the blog. So I mean, like the blog is kind of like a uh, like the central point or something, and then have things such as like courses or books and other mm-hmm. kinds of content off the blog, and the blog being like the home base. So yeah, there was me. I, I now like a few months, maybe up to a year, where that was that sort of became the plan. But the thing for me was I never really loved creating courses like myself, and I like on my own as like a solopreneur or as a w- whatever the term you want to use uh, for that would be. I I've done it before and. It it wasn't it wasn't terrible but what i really really enjoy is just like writing blog posts and putting together the podcast and connecting with people uh in that kind of way yeah creating courses can feel a little bit lonely sometimes um because you spend so much time putting it all together and and putting together the marketing for it. And, you know, I know that the job that you have now is a product educator at Teachable. And we love Teachable at ConvertKit. And we love Teachable customers because they are out there creating courses and creating, you know, something that goes along with their site. Like how you said the site is kind of the main hub for everything. And then there's all these offshoots for it. And there's so many bloggers that are really monetizing and making a great living by creating courses. But it is a lot of work up front. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Do you run into that a lot now in the role that you're in and helping people work through that? So I definitely think, yeah, creating courses is difficult. Now, I want to say I wish I actually created courses sooner because I waited Oh man, I think like a year and a half after I had the after I had the site to create my own course or my own digital product and I think if I began doing it sooner it you know, I maybe would have had a different experience or I kind of wish I took that jump sooner because it was something I was really scared to do was to create something and to sell it. It was just like this psychological thing. Like, oh my gosh, I'm really, see, to me, that was much more nerve wracking than sharing my experiences online, like actually selling something and having people pay me for it. And then after the first course, though, it's something I really kind of like got over. Now I still have like an ebook available online and a course available online. And it's just, you know, it's something I guess I'm used to now and it doesn't really, it's not that nerve wracking, but before I launched it, it definitely was a pain point or, or a thing that made me very nervous. And I think I so just I don't interact a ton with um, teachable customers one on one. So my big project, which has taken uh, and, and some, something I'm still working on at the time of this recording, is redoing the knowledge base. So I've been uh, recreating the articles that 
you know, as part of the knowledge base. And a lot of the work I'm going to be doing after this is going to be things that involve like the emails that go out to customers and other ways to educate the customers that it's not as much one-on-one interaction. But I yeah, yeah, but I know that is something that a lot of people struggle with teachable customers and beyond. Yeah, I think knowing that it's hard and doing it anyways. I mean, that's something that you did from the very beginning is, you know, you knew that learning to code was going to be hard, but you did it anyways. So there's there's something in you that pushes you to do that. And, you know, obviously you've published a course and and have one out there. So so you got through that fear and and made it happen anyways. What is a big tip that you can share with anyone who's going, oh, yeah, I know I need to get a course up on my site, but I'm just like, I'm feeling exactly the way Lawrence is describing. She's nailed me 100%. That's like, I'm, I'm petrified of people paying me money for my work. Yeah, I'd say that it's really not as scary as you know you think it's going to be and then and then once it's over it's kind of one of those things that i remember it was almost like a roller coaster or something like you know you're scared to go on the roller coaster you're on you're going up you're going up and then you go down you get off the roller coaster and you're like oh that wasn't that bad i could do it again that's exactly how i felt when i was done like with my first course and like the first launch or my first iteration of the course i should say and then the first launch of it as soon as it was done i was kind of like oh that wasn't that bad i want to do again, I sort of had this adrenaline rush. So it definitely, I would recommend to to people to do it sooner rather than later, because the longer you wait, the harder it's going to be, I think, because then it's all this uh, kind of like pressure or anxiety or or stress, whatever you want to call it, sort of builds up and you make it in some ways more and more unobtainable. So I think doing it sooner, even if you have a small email list, even if you don't have a huge audience yet, because at least you kind of get over that initial hurdle and then it'll be so much easier the next time you do it. So since you mentioned audience and and earlier you were talking about your email list, can you talk a little bit about how you how learn people learned about learn to code with me and you know who your early audience members were and and what that that has transformed into today yeah, sure. So again, early on when I first started the site, I really didn't know what I was doing. And I was not very strategic about collecting email addresses. Now, I had always heard like even before starting the site, the money's in the list, the money's in the list, you know, that that saying that people always say. So I was like, "All right, I'm just going to put a little form, you know, in my sidebar so people can sign up." So I got, you know, I had within the first few months, I had like less than 100 subscribers, because I really wasn't incentivizing people to join the email list. And then over time, as I, you know, taught myself more just about growing a blog and growing an audience that changed because I began doing uh, lead magnets, which I'm sure you guys talk about often on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. So that definitely really helped my email list. But as far as just getting people to my site early on, through social media, uh, eventually I began kind of ranking in Google. And now today that's like where I get most of the new visitors for sure is in Google. But as many people listening know it with, you know, ranking in Google and having people just Google really index your site and show it to people when they're, you know, using the search, it takes some time. It doesn't happen, you know, within the first month or two or even three for me. It happened, I think, after definitely after three months. So aside from that, I actually did some features early on of women and tech on the site. 
And they're still up on the blog today. It was just kind of like Q&A interviews. And a few of the guests I had had uh, larger audiences. So after I published their interview, they shared it with their audience. So the, the first few big like bumps of traffic that I got were as a result of those interviews. That's really a great way to leverage. I mean, for any kind of content you're creating, a podcast having guests on who have audiences that are your ideal customers or readers or, you know, featuring people on your blog, even if it's not a direct interview with them, but, you know, pulling a quote from someone and then sending them a link to it and letting them know that you've you've shared their thoughts with your audience and just th- that awareness piece. It's something Kathleen Shannon talked about early on on the Reach show. She she mentioned reaching out to Joanna Goddard, a top blogger in in her in that lifestyle niche she was part of, and just saying like, "Hey, I you know I'm, I've done this, and I think that you'd really like it." And being able to get really specific, I think that's been the big thing for you, at least from what I'm hearing today, and and even just knowing the site is learned to code with me, so we're not learning. Everything there is to do about computers or the internet or, you know, building software or we're not, it's really specific what you're talking about. And you're a woman and you're in tech. And so you can get really specific about the topics that you cover. And I think that that probably helps the Google machine want to list you too, is having those same topics that you're constantly, you know, those keywords that are going into your site and pumping back into Google probably helps with the the ranking a little bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I have a few posts that bring in lots of traffic to my site, like the majority from Google. And now that, you know, I have this full-time job and I have other things going on that I haven't even gone back and updated very much these articles, but they're still doing quite well. And yeah, for me, it's always been just about creating like quality content. And a lot of the posts that are doing that, that are do, that do so well are things that I really couldn't find the answer to online. I was curious about. So I kind of made it like a little research project and I would maybe interview a few people and do different kinds of research online. And I think because there wasn't and a good answer already online for that. And a lot of people were searching for that question or the the keywords that that article related to, it ended up naturally just moving really high in, you know, the, the search engine results page. So what is one of those posts that has, you know, a pretty big reach that people are constantly searching for? Yeah, so there's two. And the one now the you so early on, I used to use like long URLs, like for blog posts, because I didn't. Now I know that using shorter ones and very specific keyword ones are a bit better. So I can send you the URL later. It's, it's a bit lengthy just to share. But the one is called Do You Have What It Takes to Be a Front End Web Developer? So it kind of goes through like required skills. And I compare a bunch of different job listings. And I like highlight key things like skills and responsibilities responsibilities looked for in a handful of listings. I make like a nice chart comparing the differences in the job listings and essentially telling people, okay, there's all this stuff that you could learn. Here's this research that I did. Here's the few things that you should definitely learn uh, if you want to become a front-end web developer. And then there's another one that does really, really well. I Maybe it's not doing as well because, again, I just haven't updated it. And especially in web development or tech, like things change so often. So 
it's maybe not like a cooking blog or something where the same recipe can work. <laughs> like some of these things, it's, it's definitely outdated now. So there's another one that I wrote about the difference. It's in this, it's this programming language, Python. They have different versions of the language. And there were two, this was like about two years ago that were Python 2 and then Python 3. And like, which should a person learn? And this, again, was something I was, I didn't know the answer to. So I decided to do some research and put together some research. And a lot of other people were Googling it as well. So it ended up doing quite well. And then it still does well. And I still have people to this day on both of these articles, leaving comments and signing up to my email list from those articles. Because, and that's how they kind of, that was like their first touch point with the site. That's awesome. It's just that, you know, there's a couple different paths we can go down as bloggers. And it's like teaching what you know, or taking someone on a journey with you. And, but it's always finding those things that, aren't out there somewhere else. Those those are obviously going to be the the big hits on your site because there's no other search results for that answer, for that question typing into Google. And I think that's something that a, a lot of bloggers skip over thinking, oh, well, that's like, seems obvious. But writing the post that is the answer to your Google search, because if you're searching it, someone else is too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and there's, a, of course, a ton of other things people can do to find ideas and, and I, you know, kind of vet their blog posts before they write it. So for instance, you know, tools like BuzzSumo, which I do have, and I haven't been using it as much lately, but whenever I use it, it's just like a total gold mine. <laughs> I love using yeah, that tool. I love BuzzSumo. Yeah, they're great. And then same with, oh my goodness, the Google, oh, the AdWord, you, you definitely don't talk, the Keyword Planner. The keyword planner, Google keyword planner. Yeah. Yeah. So I, if I'm recalling correctly for both of those posts, I did not use any of those tools. I'm not even sure if BuzzSumo was out or if it was, it definitely wasn't the where it's at today when I wrote those. Uh, those are really genuinely just questions that I was curious about and, you know, made it into kind of a detailed researched blog post. So, yeah. yeah. So people who are listening and going, buzz what? And um, <laughs> and I didn't know there's this keyword planner. You know, it, those tools are incredibly valuable and um, and they help you get really strategic. But there's also the like super basic of what are you searching? And like I said, I feel like so many people skip over that step in in creating their their own blog of you know what are you searching for because likely you are your ideal customer or your ideal customer was you you know a couple years ago so you can always like go back in your search search history and see what you were searching for six months ago and write those responses on on your blog if that's the case if you're you're teaching what you know or or taking people along a journey with you so Lawrence, you talked about lead magnets and how that really changed the way that you grew your email list. So can you talk a little bit about that strategy and if the lead magnet has changed over time? Do you have more than one? I think this is something people wonder a lot about, like how many lead magnets should I have and what should they be about and, and how much time is it going to take to create this thing and is it going to be worth it and all that kind of stuff. What can you share about lead magnets? Yeah. So I have pretty many on my site and throughout my site. And 
that's because I, at one point I began trying to make one almost for every single blog post, but then I actually realized, and you know, everyone's different. This could be different for other people, but for me, that's actually wasn't the best strategy was to make a unique one for every blog post because it definitely does take time. So what I would recommend to people is that what then I began doing is creating like a core set of lead magnets. So maybe five or something, or maybe 10, I guess, depending how large your site is. And having each be about a certain area that can then relate to different blog posts across your site. So you can reuse the same lead magnet on multiple posts. So that's something that I try to do now. Now, not every post on my site has a lead magnet. There's some that don't, but If collecting emails is like a huge goal for you right now, like that's like your main focus maybe for the next few months or something, then you should definitely try to incorporate a lead magnet onto every single or on every single blog post. And something else that I do is I just have signups like all over my site. If you go through my site and pay attention, you'll see I have one in the footer. It's like a button that you click and then like a pop-up modal will appear. I have like under each blog post title, it has the date and then it says get awesome and free stuff here. And then when you click here, that'll bring you to a page that's like the newsletter page essentially and has a lead Mm. magnet there. Yeah. And my front page, so just my homepage is basically a huge lead magnet or a big like landing page opt-in form. Welcome, Matt. Yeah, yeah welcome, yeah. Matt. Yeah, it's a good, yeah, good word to use for that. And then, you know, you kind of scroll down and it goes, you know, click over to the blog. So I just, this, and at this point, again, this was like a year ago. I, I, I redid my site over a year ago and I really haven't changed it since. But when I kind of went through the redesign process, I really had, okay, you know, where can I get people to opt in, but without being super, you know, obnoxious, of course, not like spammy, you know, pop-ups every five seconds and, you know, like, like, you know, make it, you know, like how to integrate it nicely with my site. Yeah. I think that's always the, the balancing act. And a lot of bloggers tend to, to veer toward less opt-ins because they're afraid of seeming spammy or they don't they're annoyed by pop-ups or whatever but it's always nice to have those multiple multiple options and what a great hack for content upgrades Lawrence to just like create one for each category on your blog and then use that depending on the category of the blog post yeah genius yeah instead of recreating one for every post yeah exactly so the way that I Well, and again, this wasn't something I did from the get-go. I wish I did because it would have saved me a ton of time and I probably would get like even more email subscribers and it would be much, again, that's more of like a strategic kind of thing to do. But uh, so for instance, I could have one that related to getting a job in tech, like like some kind of guide or, you know, checklist or what have you. I could have one that related to WordPress or something and that could go on all the WordPress posts. I could have one that related to learning, um, HTML and CSS, and then that could go and post that related um, to HTML and CSS. So yeah, I like the way that you described that, like kind of breaking it down based on category. Yeah, that's so smart. People, as much as we love those checklists or things that are individual to the blog post, especially when you are juggling a full-time job and a busy blog, it's nice to just keep it simple for yourself. And it's still really valuable. Obviously, your reach grows every single day. And, you know, you you gave that that famous saying, the money is in the list. So how has that proven to be true for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, things changed so much 
once I got a bigger email list. And it's just so amazing to see how long like it took me. And I think this is how it pretty much goes for everyone. Like just to get the first hundred subscribers, then the first thousand, it like how much faster at least it seemed to get from like 100 to 1000, then even from zero to 100. And again, it, at that really early time, I was doing so much wrong on my site. It wasn't optimized for collecting leads. It was, it was, it wasn't very strategizing. I was kind of writing not very great posts. And over time, I became much more strategized. So yeah, things just everything becomes so much easier once you have an email list. And I think the larger it becomes, of course, again, you know, we say qualified people or, you know, quality people on the email list. If it's a bunch of low quality people who don't open your emails, that's a totally different story. So you definitely want to attract the right people to your email list. And kind of circling back to what you said about or what we were just talking about with the different lead magnets based on category. There's one that I have and it's on my homepage and it's throughout my site. It's called 10 Tips for Learning How to Code. And that's one that when I created it at the time, I didn't really think about it this way, but later I realized it. It's very universal. So pretty much on any blog post on my site, I could have that in that post and it would be relevant. So maybe that's another tip for people to do to kind of have like one universal kind of lead magnet that could really be used anywhere and then maybe getting a bit more specialized based on categories and like themes that you cover on your site. Yeah, that's so smart. And and knowing that your site speaks to coders that you're or people who are learning how to code that you're more generalized opt-in speaks to coding because if you're if you're a generalized opt-in where, you know, get my favorite lunchtime recipes I use when I'm coding, that might not be as relevant. <laughs> yeah. And that's almost too specific. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, people try to get cute with things or like make it, oh, well, I would want some recipes. Like, well, that's great that that's what you would want. So it goes a little bit against the idea of, you know, writing the blog post to answer your Google search terms. But yeah, you don't want to get too specific and you want to think about what your your readers would want. Someone who's wanting to learn how to code wants those those 10 tips to to learning to code. That seems like an obvious answer, but again, the obvious answer is often passed over for for more difficult things when it doesn't have to be. Yeah, yeah, great point. So, Lawrence, I would love to know now that you have built up the blog and and have the reach that you do. What do you what do you want to do with it? I mean, being a, a female in tech and and teaching other people how to to teach themselves to code, um, that's that's a huge responsibility. What do you want What do you want to do with your reach? And what is your goal for your blog today? Yeah. So since I so this last oh man, it's like six weeks or two months or something now. A lot has been going on because I relocated to New York. I was living in Boston before. I now work full time at Teachable. So really, it's kind of been on. I don't like this word, but I feel like it's the best way to describe it. Kind of like maintenance mode. So I'm not so focused right now on the Learn to Code Me blog itself uh, with creating new content. And I'm not super focused on getting new email subscribers or totally growing my reach right now. It's kind of in maintenance mode, but I definitely want to keep that alive for sure. And what I am focusing though now in the near term is doing a season two of the podcast. And really, and that's kind of for the rest of the year, but you know, looking ahead, pretty much everything that I do today 
This includes Teachable and other opportunities that come my way. I kind of ask myself before making the decision, like yes or no, if it's something that I should do or not, you know, is this going to empower more people to learn how to use technology and, you know, have a better life or business or career because of it. So with Teachable, that was definitely a yes, because essentially my role is here helping users better understand the platform, which is, you know, it's it's web-based, so that is a technology. And it, it kind of, it, you know, it goes in line with that. And another thing that I began doing a bit more recently, or I, I should say over the summer, is contributing to Forbes. And my whole uh, niche there is about empowering people to use technology or learn technical skills so they can get ahead in their career and their life. So that was an obvious yes as well. So really looking like long-term into the future, that's, I want to expand my reach. I want to keep, you know, writing on more sites, getting, you know, the word out there and kind of having everything just align with that goal. And that's a beautiful goal to have. And so many, so many bloggers go through, ups and downs with their blog and maybe take on either like a, a big client and they can't do as much blogging anymore or or they decide to take a full-time job because it's in their passion like you have that that gut check with everything you do and I know I went through this when I joined the ConvertKit team too with my own blog so I I know from personal experience that this is something a lot of people go through and not enough people talk about that sometimes you do have to go through those like you know like you said maintenance modes with your site well it doesn't mean that it stops reaching people and it stops being helpful to people because it certainly is still doing that but you're looking at how it becomes a platform that that impacts a lot of other things around you and not just being this this one home base for everything but being the the middle of that hub that everything goes out from so that's really beautiful to share that you're you're going through that or you've recently gone through that process because whether someone's going through it now or may go through it in the future it's nice to know that you aren't alone in making that decision and as long as you have that like guiding point like you mentioned knowing that that kind of why question that you ask yourself about everything you do really helps you stay in tune with why you started the blog in the first place Yes, definitely. You described that, I think, much better than I ever could. <laughs> but sometimes I think it takes <laughs> almost like the third party looking out, you know, and, and describing the situation and that, yes, dead yeah. on exactly what you said. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that and everything else that you've shared with us today and for everything that you do to advance education online and for women in tech and for all of us to to better understand the technology that we're working with and that is such a part of our daily lives in in the modern world so thanks Lawrence keep it up and I can't wait to hear the rest of the podcast this year and next yeah thank you Val for having me on the show it's really nice to connect with you that was Laurence Bradford founder of learn to code with me you can find out more about Laurence and her work at learntocodewith.me. Grab our free action guide from this episode to help you impact your own reach today. Head to convertkit.com reach or simply click the link provided right in your podcast player. It's time to expand your reach. We're so glad you started here. Thanks for listening.